This is the Blaze Radio On Demand. Get a Casper mattress and get a great night's sleep. Try it for 100 nights risk-free. Go to casper.com slash Glenn and use the promo code Glenn. Get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. Terms and conditions do apply. And enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn Beck today on the Glenn Beck program. Thank you so much for joining. As always, great to have you here. So I'd like to think that I'm in the holiday spirit, considering that we have Thanksgiving in just a few days, and we have a number of other holidays coming up after that. I'm even here on a set where there are snowflakes falling gently. It's exciting. Gets me happy. Soon there'll be presents, perhaps a bit of overeating. All good things. You'd think that maybe... There could be a bit of a delay in all of the nastiness in our politics. You think that perhaps they could just sit back for a moment and say, well, we lost that election, but let's all just eat some, some turkey and uh, maple ham, what, whatever else gets you excited. Stuffing, some people are stuffing people, um, and they could look forward to that and time with family and friends and hopefully some time off from work. And that that would be exciting and they'd be ready to go. But if you thought any of that, unfortunately, you would be wrong, it seems, at least based on a bit of the headlines. You see, over the weekend, our vice president-elect, VP-elect, Mike Pence, uh, went to go see a show, a show in my hometown. I've seen a few shows before. I, I tend to see them broken down. For those of you who are going to be soon to be visitors to New York or who have been in the past, usually there's the sort of Lion King-style uh, musical extravaganza. And then there's the more uh, artiste kind of stuff that goes on. There's the more high art, high concept Broadway plays. And they get a lot of attention and they get a lot of people making noise about them, generally on the left, because politically speaking, they're always one way. So I don't go to the theater that much. But I would like to think that if I went to the theater, there would be no reason for me to be concerned that it will turn into a political lecture, that there would be the booing of our VP-elect, that it would turn into an opportunity for people, once again, to politicize absolutely everything. They're at Hamilton, Hamilton, a show that I have not yet seen, which I blame, well, one, on the fact that from what I have seen of it, I'm deeply unimpressed. And two, at $700 a ticket, which I think is still about the going rate, and the fact that it's sold out for many months in advance, uh, just not in the buck budget. I haven't seen it yet, but I've seen some of the numbers because they've performed them. I am unimpressed. Easy to say that now, I'm sure some would say, because politically speaking, they have annoyed me. Uh, but huge, huge success. A lot of people have gone to see it. Um, 
I even think Dick Cheney likes it, if memory serves. Lots of folks think that it's great. Celebration of the Founding Fathers, uh, a predominantly, if not entirely, minority, uh, predominantly minority cast, um, and people like it, right? It's like Founding Fathers, History of America, with uh, sort of a hip-hop flavor to it. Okay, great. Not necessarily my cup of tea, but maybe. I don't know. I haven't seen it. But we would think that anybody should be able to go to this and... You're, you're, you're at something that celebrates America, celebrates diversity, it's very successful. All these actors are very pleased to be there, be doing well. But the left can't let it go. Whether it's sporting events, I was told recently by a friend, I'd never heard this before, that he can't watch ESPN anymore because ESPN is now MSNBC with sports. I didn't even know because I don't have cable. Uh, but you can't escape this anywhere. There's nowhere you can go where you will be safe. The audience at Hamilton booed Vice President-elect Mike Pence. They thought, well, why let this guy, who was there with his family, by the way, he's trying to enjoy a Broadway show. Maybe we could just let it go, guys. Probably a fair amount of New Yorkers there. I'm sure a fair amount of -of out-of-towners. But everybody should know, basic decorum in the theater. Everyone's there to relax and have a good time. They want to watch the show. I'm not complaining about the politics of the show. That you sign up for. But you don't think that you're going to get singled out in the audience to be booed, to be heckled, and then on top of that, to be lectured in a very condescending fashion by the cast of the show after you've been booed and you are the vice president-elect of the United States of America at a play about the American founding. You you think maybe they could just tone it down a little bit. Just notch it down a few bits. But no, they they didn't do that. Um, In fact, we can play the audio for you because I'm sure some people knew that there was going to be something of a lecture coming. And the lecture came. And here's what it was. Play it. We have a a message for you, sir. We hope that you will hear us out. And I encourage everybody to launch your phones and tweet and post because this message needs to be spread far and wide, okay? Vice President-elect Pence, we welcome you and we truly thank you for joining us here at Hamilton and American Musical. We really do. We, sir, we are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us. Our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. But we truly hope that this show has inspired you to uphold our American values and to work on behalf of all of us. All of us. And we truly take you to share this show, this wonderful American story told by a diverse group of men and women of different colors, creeds, and orientations. All right, so you get the idea. To put this in the proper context, by the way, Hillary Clinton, the would-be president-elect, except she lost. Oh, so sad. She attended Hamilton. She was there. She actually had a fundraiser there. So Hamilton was co-opted by the Clinton machine for the purposes of raising even more cash to add to the billion dollars that was spent to make sure that she would not get elected, it seems. And she was hugged 
by the creator and star of Hamilton, the musical. Uh, She was treated as an honored guest. So clearly Mike Pence was not treated as an honored guest. Now, I suppose we can't expect the left, which just based on the way that comedians thought it was their job after the election to cry and spout profanity instead of trying to make us all laugh together. They, they abandon their craft in the face of politics now. They just can't keep it all together. I guess we shouldn't expect all that much for VP-elect Pence at the Hamilton Theater. Uh, but then when you start to put into it the aftermath, the discussions, because this became a, a quite a, uh, a thing over the weekend. I was hoping to avoid politics for a day or two, but sure enough, you open the Twitter feed or you look on the Facebook, and what do you find? You find battles raging over whether this was disrespectful or not. Now, I know on the, if you're putting this out on the ledger on the side, if it's not disrespectful, you have Pence himself saying, oh, he didn't feel disrespectful. What's he going to say? Boo-hoo, I feel so sad on the insides. It gives me the sadness that people said mean things. Or they, I'm sorry, the booing was mean. Then we get into the the verbiage used in the lecture itself. And I even had a a couple of exchanges with some of my fellow journalist colleagues over the weekend on this one, on the Twitter, which probably, you just, Saturday Twitter should just be avoided. Just like stay away from the Twitter on Saturday, Buck. It's a much better way to be. They're saying, what's what's disrespectful in what they said? It was a message of unity and hope. Really, you know, if somebody told me that they were worried that I was going to be, I mean, I'm unmarried, so let's just go, I, you know, we're worried you're going to be an abusive husband. We're really hoping you can avoid being an abusive husband because a good husband would be great. I wouldn't take that as some compliment. I wouldn't take that as some moment of unity. I wouldn't think to myself, oh, wow, they really have the best interests of humanity at heart here. I'd think, well, that's, that's really nasty. Well, I don't deserve that. Why are they saying that? And that was really the tone. To say that somebody needs to be reminded, or, or rather that you are, let me use their exact words, because I don't want to be accused of making it sound worse than it is. Alarmed and anxious, they say, that your new administration will not protect us, our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights. So they're alarmed that he won't uphold the Constitution. They're alarmed that he will single out uh, their children, their parents, won't protect them, won't protect the planet. I suppose that's some sort of a nod to climate change hysteria. But even Obama didn't stop the rise of the seas. Or, well, the rise of the seas is not that big of a deal, actually. But don't tell anyone. It's fun for them to freak out about it. But this is now the America that we live in given that Hillary Clinton did not win. You see, they had eight years of Obama, and they figured that it would just be Democrats from here on out. They became really used to getting their way. We were living in an America where the prospect of a Republican candidate, a Republican winning, and then making Supreme Court appointments, a Republican who actually has members, uh, or a majority in the House and in the Senate at the same time, they are going to have to deal with some pretty disappointing stuff going forward, and they're not ready for it. They're willing to throw our most revered institutions 
under the bus, so to speak. They're willing to say that the way that our government is constructed is not this act of genius. Speaking of the founding fathers and all the great stuff that they did, based on one result of one election, we need a rethink, they say. The popular vote is what should matter. States' rights have nothing to do with anything that isn't slavery. That still seems to be the meme. That's the thought process out there, at least if you listen to it on social media and you see what they have to say. Of course, Donald Trump himself decided to weigh in on this, as well as some other journalists. But I just before we get even deeper into this, because I think there are a couple more layers worth exploring, I just wanted to say, not even safe to go with his family to the play. Mike Pence can't just hang out there without people booing him and acting like children and being disrespectful, and the actors piling on at the end. I don't care what anybody says, including Mike Pence. The words used were condescending. The message was unnecessary. But this is a harbinger of things to come. This is now a post-Obama, Trump as president America, where there will be only safe spaces, so to speak, for the left. Nothing is safe. Nothing is sacred. They particularly dislike that word. Nothing is sacred to protect the right, to protect our rights. If it means that they get to throw a tantrum and they get to make a point, they will do it. 888-727-BECK. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn. We'll be right back. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn Beck today on the Glenn Beck program. Thank you so much for joining or for staying through the break. Any and all of the above. I just want to have some fun, if I could, for a minute with the reactions that you got to this whole Hamilton controversy. People are saying, doesn't, doesn't the pre- are there more important things for Donald Trump and the administration to be worried about than this? Because Trump tweeted out, quote, the cast and producers of Hamilton which I hear is highly overrated, I'm not going to lie, I've heard that too, should immediately apologize to Mike Pence for their terrible behavior, (laughs) Trump wrote in his third tweet on the subject. Look, the POTUS Twitter account, or the soon-to-be POTUS, I should say, Twitter account, uh, I don't think it's going to get turned off during the presidency. And I I think that it's okay. I think that if Donald Trump wants to uh, weigh in on these issues, you will recall we had a president who thought it was fine to weigh in on whether a friend and I believe former professor of his uh, was uh, treated brusquely by the police when he was trying to get back into his home. Remember the Cambridge police acted stupidly? So there are no, there's no issue that's too small on its face for the president to weigh in. And I think, I think your vice president getting booed and then uh, a stern, or I shouldn't say stern, a condescending lecture from the stage at the most famous Broadway play in the country right now Uh, I think Donald Trump's going to weigh in on that. Uh, There are some, though, who already see conspiracy afoot here. We have, what is this, someone from Politico, uh, Ben White, 
Sir, you just settled the $25 million fraud lawsuit and your cabinet is looking racist. This is one of the media's favorite things to talk about. Don't worry, I'll distract them all with dumb Hamilton tweets. So this was, it's Trump's fault now. Get, get used to this, by the way. Whether you like Trump or not, get used to the dishonesty you're going to see in the media with, it's not what people do to the administration. It's not maligning very decent government servants, lifelong, uh, lifelong public servants, people that have served in the military for decades who have been asked to serve in a Trump administration. The problem is not with all the nastiness and the lies and the propagandizing of the left against the Trump administration. The problem is with whatever Trump's reaction is to all of that stuff. That's the way they're going to play this. It's really a corollary. It's, it's a sort of addition to the old, anytime a Democrat makes a mistake, rep- quote, Republicans pounce. Or the right-wing media pounces. Well, what are we supposed to do? I mean, there's a, there's a mistake. Something bad happens. You're going to point it out. If pointing it out and talking about it is pouncing, yeah, I guess we pounce a little bit. I guess we've been known to pounce. Uh, but that's the formulation that they come up with so that the focus is never actually on the wrongdoing or the mistake. The focus is on those who point out the mistake. And in this case, not only was the big problem, and I just had to, I was really drinking this in. I had my little brother's birthday over the weekend having a great time. And so when I, when I wasn't out celebrating for that, I'm looking at the, at, I, keep, I need to stop using the article here, the Twitter, because I guess it is just Twitter, but it's fun to call it the Twitter. Uh, and, and, and the Facebook or if you were in France, le Facebook. Uh, I'm looking at all this stuff and the arguments going back and forth, and I think to myself, well, hold on a second here. Give me, give me, give me a minute. Uh, wait, why is Trump's speech somehow considered to be unacceptable? Why is it not okay for Trump to respond to speech with speech? This is now considered silencing? Ooh, I've got a great one. Uh, Robert Reich, who has three, he's a former administration official, I think under Clinton's, 310,000 followers, so I assume a few people read this. He wrote, I'm with Brandon Dixon, um, I think is one of the actors on Hamilton, but I'm not sure. Real Donald Trump, this is, this is what the left comes up with. Real Donald Trump must stop using tweets to criticize free speech he disagrees with. That's un-American. Well, hold on a second. So, using speech to criticize speech is now, quote, un-American. This is, what we've, this is what we've been pushed towards, everybody. You're no longer allowed to even object. Your objection to their transgression is the problem. Anything that you do that shows that you don't agree with them, that you want to push back, that you think that they are either disrespectful or just wrong, well, you're going to do something that upsets them because you see now the left thinks that America is one giant safe space for them. And with the media completely in their pocket and under eight years of an Obama administration that was far left and as progressive as it could possibly be, they thought that it was all over, that the battles had been won, that nobody would really be able to push back. And if they had the temerity to do so, they would be crushed. And then the Republicans come along and they win everything. And it's a sad, sad day for the progressive left. The statists are all like, whoa, hold on a second, bro. I thought we had finished them off. 
No, in fact, there are a lot of us still left, and we have a First Amendment right to say that you use your First Amendment right like a bunch of bozos. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. The key to having a great day starts with having a great night's sleep, and I know because I have a Casper mattress. The Casper mattress was invented with two high-tech foams that give you all of the support that you need and guarantee that you get the best night's sleep ever. Time Magazine named Casper Mattress one of the best inventions of 2015. Casper ships for free in a box so small you won't believe it holds the actual mattress, making it simple to get from your front door to your bedroom. And you try it for 100 nights risk-free. They'll come and pick it up if you don't love it as much as I love mine, and they'll refund every single dime. Once you try it, you're never going to want to sleep on anything else. Having a great day by having a great night's sleep, casper.com slash Glenn. Use the promo code Glenn, $50 off the purchase of your mattress at casper.com slash Glenn. The promo code is Glenn. Don't forget, $50 off the purchase of your mattress, casper.com slash Glenn. Terms and conditions do apply. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn Beck today on the Glenn Beck program. 888-727-BECK if you'd like to uh, chat with me here on air. We'll do that with a few right now. We've got Kirk in Tennessee. What's up, Kirk? You're talking to Buck. Hey, Buck. How's it going today? That's not bad, sir. How are you? Not bad. Not bad at all. You know, with, with everything that's been going on this whole political season, everybody has been ranting and raving about their rights. My right to free speech, my right to this, my right to that. Well, I'd like to counter with, really, you have no rights. Your right was bought with the blood of our military people who died for that. All we have left are responsibilities. And it is our responsibility to exercise those rights in a responsible adult manner. You have the right to carry a firearm, but you also have the right, the responsibility to use that firearm in a responsible manner. Well, you, you should have the right to carry a firearm, but as a New Yorker, I can tell you there are plenty of places where you actually don't have, they, they, don't, they don't allow you that right. Um, but and, I think, I, think I, I get your, your meaning here. I, I get the point um, that there are people, well, first of all, of course, without uh, military and the sacrifice of those who right. came before us, uh, there would be no state institution that can protect these rights. But, I mean, the rights right. are inalienable, right? I mean, these are rights that are not given to us by government. They are endowed to us by God. That's really the basis for this whole thing we call America, isn't it? It is. It is. But, again, you've got to look at what those, what those rights were purchased with. And if you, take, if you take that thought and use the humility that comes from that thought, all of a sudden my right to free speech exercises my responsibility of when is it appropriate to talk to somebody about the administration or about politics? 
when it is appropriate to confront somebody with my quote unquote fears and trepidations of what the next political season will bring. Yeah, basically you're saying, look, this is my reaction. I think I actually tweeted this with the whole Hamilton thing. If we're talking about right. when and where you can have, it's just a jerk move. I mean, the guys at a Broadway yeah. play. I mean, they're going to yeah. have endless. I mean, we're going to see so much talk about him in the media, and we could have the cast of Hamilton. I'm sure they'd be more than welcome on NBC and the Today Show and Good Morning All. Oh, yeah. Go talk about how terrible Mike Pence or how great he is, whatever, whatever. They're not going to say he's great, but you know what I'm saying. There's lots yeah. of opportunity. They could give a speech without him in the audience even, although I would, if I were in that audience, it would, it would bother me that I'm there to be entertained. I'm actually not there to be lectured about contemporary politics, right? That's not what I signed up for as, as a consumer. Exactly. I wasn't there. Again, 700 bucks, a little steep. Uh, but they, it, just wasn't, it just wasn't cool. That's the best way I can put it. What they did just wasn't cool. And that the left is so uh, self-righteous and also so panicked right now that they can't even understand that it's not cool that they would try to defend this somehow and say oh well you know it wasn't that bad what they said was respectful no the guys there with his wife and kids leave him alone leave him alone <laughs> let him just watch the play if you're going to well, come out and say oh it's great we've got vice president pence here thank you so much for showing up sir god yeah. bless america that's it yeah yeah and my further thought would be if we ex- if we exercised our responsibility these rioters that have been destroying cities because they have their little feelers in them or not, if they exercise responsibility, would we be having these rioters? Uh, no, I mean, that, rioting exactly. is, is de facto irresponsible. Exactly. <laughs> rioting is, is, is the height of irresponsibility when it comes to, well, I mean, there are worse things one yeah. can do, but it's, it's pretty bad when it comes to uh, political activity. So anyway, uh, Kirk, Tennessee, great to talk to you. Thank you for calling you. in. Jerry in Wisconsin, you're on the Glenbeck program. You're speaking to Buck. Hi, uh, Buck. I, I, I'll concede to you that maybe the time and place was wrong, and the, maybe that, that was wrong. Okay, I concede that point. But the other question, the larger question, is the content. Was the content of what they said wrong? No, I, I, I don't think it is. Look at what did President elect Trump campaign upon? partly to revoke marriage equality, appeal to the Christian right wing, that he would appoint judges that would strip it. Uh, Mike Pence has not a very good pro-gay record, obviously. So these are fundamental questions that they're concerned about and I'm concerned about. And when are they really going to talk to someone like that, like people who watch the cast of Hamilton? Like All right, right, so so you, you've given me your, your pros and cons or your yes and no. Uh, let's, take this, let's take this piece by piece. Do you think that anything that they said in any way changed Mike Pence's mind or anyone in that audience, for that matter? Do you, do you think that somebody came away thinking, well, well, now you think Pence was like, you know, I'm going to tell Donald to throw out a lot of the stuff that he's been saying and thinking because the cast of Hamilton is worried that we won't take care of the planet. So on the level of efficacy, do you think that it actually had any impact whatsoever? Well, any free speech is not only going to impact. Look, at my call right now, it's not going to convince many people listening to your show. No, I, I disagree. There, there might you. be people listening. There might be people listening who say that guy's 100% right. I completely agree yeah. with him, and let's go. But by the way, you're also making a coherent argument, one with which I, I don't agree. But saying that we're worried, we meaning the, uh, the cast of Hamilton, we're worried that people. you won't take care of the planet. I mean, this is, this is childish nonsense. What does, that even, what does that even mean? I don't even know what that means. 
We well, won't take care of the planet. Like, uh, I know you probably disagree, but climate change, global warming, uh, marriage uh, equality, gay rights, civil rights, uh, against police uh, brutality. Trump, Trump has uh, stood up on stage. a lot of things. Okay, but Trump has stood up on, for getting away from the take care of the planet for a second. Trump has stood up on stage with a, with a LGBT flag and, and held it up high at one of his rallies. He has never said he's going to overturn uh, Obergefell and, and roll, uh, roll back a mayor. He's never even, I've never even heard him say it. And yet there's this idea out there that Trump's going to do all these horrible and terrible things. He's not even in office yet. And this is the vice president. It's not even Trump. And he's on a Broadway play and he's getting a lecture. I mean, you know, if Mike Pence goes in, you know, if Mike Pence has to go and wash his hands in the lavatory, should people just follow him in there and be like, sure, I know you're trying to wash your hands and have a moment alone, but let me just tell you what's going on here. I mean, there is, I, I think you can see to that, to be fair. There's a time and place issue with it, period. But it, on the messaging aspect of it, that they would, I, I want to make sure, again, I'm going back to the specific verbiage here, concern that they wouldn't take care of or, or they wouldn't protect their children Mike Pence won't protect children? What evidence is there of that? Who said Mike, Mike Pence hates kids all of a sudden? What's the problem? I, I don't understand. Well, I, I think there's a lot of various concerns in that one message. But, I mean, look, at how did Donald Trump get elected? He got elected appealing to Christian evangelicals. So 80% of them voted for him. So there was a reason they voted for him, because they thought he would implement their policy. Other people are seeing this. I mean, we're not stupid. We're seeing his appeals to the Christian right wing. And obviously it produces concern on the policy wow. he's going to put. this is Jeff fascinating. Do- Donald Trump, the, the thrice-married New York City billionaire, is the candidate of right-wing evangelicals. I'm pretty sure from all the exit polling and all the actual data that we have based on the election – People went for Trump because of jobs, the economy, a culture of political correctness, a slap <laughs> at D.C. Uh, you, you don't believe it. People were just they were all lying about the that. Culture of political correctness. It seems like anything that a conservative sometimes disagrees with is politically incorrect. I'm not saying that it has no meaning, but it's an overused term. I mean, it. So, so you you don't think we're at a point now where social justice warriors can't even tell me what terms to use because they change week to week and they will want people like me and others to lose their jobs if we use the wrong pronoun. But you don't think that that's a problem. You don't think there's a, a culture of political correctness. I, I think the term is over years. When um, Colin Kaepernick took a knee, he was called politically correct, even though he took a, a position that the most people disagreed with, a position he did something that hurt him. Um, that was unpopular, and he was called politically correct. You think it hurt him? Um, among, the, among Colin Kaepernick's constituency and fans, they think he's a hero. I mean, this is like the kids that stand up on college campuses in the auditorium and are like, I just want to want to push for, you know, radical revolution and communism in this country, and everyone around them erupts in cheers, but they're being bold because there are other places in the country that don't agree with them. Uh, no, no, I, I don't buy that at all. And, and by the way, when you have a federal government that is threatening to, as this administration is, cut off funds for schools unless schools allow boys to use the girls' bathroom, I think they've jumped the shark. Like, I actually think we've all reached this point in the country where they've won all of the real battles that they wanted to have in the culture war, and now they're just looking to essentially go and round up the survivors. I, I don't know what else to no. say. They're pushing further and further all the time. No. Uh, well, you could say no, you could say no, but I mean, I'm giving you examples, but and you're just telling me that it's overused. Facts. It's basically that's why. I mean, you're just recognizing I- that fact. 
I'm recognizing what fact. I missed you there, and I wanted to hear it. So, so I people smack are it down. born into the wrong sex. There are boys who should have been girls, and people born oh, girls who should have been boys. And you're just recognizing the fact that they were born into the wrong sex. Uh, I'm just, just I'm, I just freshman biology XX chromosome XY chromosome. I, I remember it well, and, and yet Nature for some reason get it right. Basically, we're, we're not being t- yeah. And by the way, the, the people that you're referring to are, are not actually in any way basing this decision upon something that is medical it is emotional and psychological but there's not we're not actually talking about people that have a specific medical issue and that's what they're trying to address uh and by the way always remember that it's not enough to make an accommodation it's not enough to say that there'll be a a separate restroom facility they actually have to use the same facility as the opposite sex because they want everyone to say that this is that science isn't real, that this care. doesn't actually happen. All right, I, 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 we could do this all day, but we got, <laughs> I actually have to go. But, Jerry, I appreciate it. You're calling in and you're standing tall on your side of the, of the issue. So good for you. Uh, thank you for giving us a ring. We'll take, uh, we've got time for one more. Nathan in Virginia, you're on the Glenn Beck program. You're speaking to Buck. Hey, Buck. I, I wanted to talk to you about uh, Donald Trump's uh, meeting with Romney over the weekend. Um, I, can I share my opinion on the whole matter, and then I want to hear yours? Yeah, I wanted to talk about that. We're going to get to the next hour. But go for it. Start it off. All right. Start the um, noise. I, I do. Be, I do believe that uh, Trump is, has an agenda here to get to win over all the uh, Rhino Republicans, Never Trumpers, by electing basically their leader who ran for the presidency and wasn't good enough for the presidency. What What makes What makes him good enough to be Secretary of State, or, or why would Trump even do that when he, they went against him the whole time? They didn't. He didn't need them to win the the, the presidential elect position. What I mean, what what do you think's going on there? I mean, it, I don't I don't like I don't like Romney to be honest with you. I never did. I didn't vote for him the, when he was running for president because I just don't think he would be a good leader. He's a good businessman. He's he's got a man. He's a man with moral and ethics, as far as I know. But the, he didn't support Donald Trump when he needed him the most. And what do you think? What's your opinion uh, uh, on the matter? Sure, sure. Well, well. For full disclosure, Nathan, I I did have a, I, I do have a high opinion of of Mitt Romney, which probably doesn't surprise many people who listen to me on a regular basis. But um, I think he's a very uh, ethical and uh, very very bright, very successful guy, self made guy in business. Uh, why would he or why should Trump reach out to him? Trump is clearly uh, giving a certain privilege to loyalty, right? He's, he's giving a, pr- a preference to those who were loyal to him in the primary, as he should and is completely understandable, by the way. I think that's one of the most important things. You, know, you, promote, you promote from within your ranks, right? You bring people in that have been with you all along, and then you can also pull in some pieces, at least this is how I see it, uh, that either bring you a, sp- a specific or special uh, expertise that's maybe outside of your inner circle's ability, or... You do it for the purposes of unity, right? Okay, of, so, so, he's, you, so he's doing it for the purposes of unity. Yes, he of wants, course. He's he doing to it to bring together Senate. the various factions of the Republican Party. So he wants to win over the Senate and the House of Representatives when he starts passing legislation because he pulled in Mitt Romney. They're not going to give him such a hard time. The Republicans are talking about. I, I don't know if Mitt Romney alone is going to have much impact if he became Secretary of State on the way the Senate and the House operate, but I, I just think that it's a signal to the sort of mainstream, or uh, mainstream is the wrong word because Donald Trump won the election. What would we say here? The old guard Republican establishment that if they're willing to play ball and they want to help a Trump administration be the best that it can be, uh, so that the they're Trump. welcome. 
He's What's like up? A little, he's reaching out, and Mitt Romney's literally the olive branch between the Never Trumpers, the Rhinos, and the Trump supporters. Yes, and I, I think I think that that's under the circumstances. I think it's wise. But Nathan, we'll get into this more next hour. We got a bounce. Uh, Buck Sexton in for Glenn. Back in a few. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn today. Got a lot coming up in the second hour of the show. But first, if we're going to call out a sort of leftist message from the stage and how it's not cool, got to keep it real on both sides here. Kanye, Kanye West, was uh, on stage over the weekend and he praised Trump, which whether you like it or not is what he did, interestingly enough. He also called out Beyonce. The Beyonce police are going to find him. Uh, but he also only did three songs. He was 90 minutes late, and then he walked off stage, and that was it. So, also not cool. He get, he had a pro-Trump message. What did he say? He said, uh, it's a new world, Hillary Clinton. It's a new world, uh, Kanye said from his floating platform stage. Feelings matter, because guess what? Everybody in middle America felt a way, and they showed you how they felt. A pro-Trump message from Kanye. However... However, he should at least do more than three songs. Not cool. And uh, also, I'm willing to bet that audience didn't particularly... Now, it's a little different because, you know, you're dealing with uh, Kanye. It's going to be a little unpredictable. But I bet they didn't really want to hear about how Hillary Clinton needed to learn a lesson. And they definitely wanted to hear more than three songs. And they didn't want to wait 90 minutes. So, not cool on either side with that. Uh, Got a lot coming up. 888-727-BECK. I will be back in just a few minutes. Stay with me. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn Beck today on the Glenn Beck program. Thank you so much for joining. So President Obama is president for a little while longer, and there are a lot of people who want to know how he will handle dealing with the Trump administration post-Obama's own presidency. Is he going to be somebody who tries 
to hold Trump to account, or is he going to pull more of a George W. Bush maneuver where he doesn't want to meddle in his successor's plans? Uh, Obama was in Peru over the weekend, uh, meeting with a bunch of world leaders, talking about trade deals, talking about all kinds of stuff. Uh, And he was asked specifically about whether he would weigh in on a Trump presidency right off the bat. Here's what our current president had to say about how he will perhaps criticize or not our next president. As an American citizen uh, who cares deeply about our country, if there are issues that have less to do with the specifics of some legislative proposal or battle, but go to core questions about our values and our ideals. Um, And if I think that uh, it's necessary or helpful for me to uh, defend those ideals, uh, then uh, I'll, I'll examine it when it comes. Once again, the, you know, the assumption is where the condescension comes in. Just as with the Hamilton actors making the assumption that they need to remind Mike Pence to defend their children and the planet, by the way. President Obama feels the need to say that he will only step in basically if Trump takes the dial to 11. If Trump just goes wild, man, if he just does some crazy stuff and casts off all respect and dignity and, I don't know, Trump, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Bad things happen because of Trump. Um, Can we wait until the guy gets into office before we freak out about everything? The sort of, the collective hysteria from the collectivists, the left's constant... uh, proclamations that they need to get ahead of the coming catastrophe is really, in a sense, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Because no matter what Trump does, they're going to think that it's horrific because they've been told now, ever since he won, that it was going to be horrific. I've been saying from the beginning, they're they're so lucky that a a hardline Republican uh, who's a a bedrock foundational conservative didn't win, they're going to be able to get Trump to meet them halfway on a whole bunch of issues. It's much less frightening than they seem to think that it is. Part of them, I think, uh, or part of this, is that they're upset that they no longer have a, uh, the ability, the sort of secret weapon of shutting down speech they don't like by making claims of racism or xenophobia or misogyny. The misogyny one has never worked well for them, by the way. The war on women, even, with Mitt Romney didn't work particularly well. Mitt Romney just wasn't going to beat Barack Obama in that election. But they have President Obama coming out here and speaking on the world stage, saying that the door is open for him right after he leaves the White House to criticize the next occupant of the White House if things get really bad. Why do we have to, why do we have to get ahead of things here? Why is there the suggestion that things might get so terrible that President Obama would have to weigh in right away? I was wondering, I was, how hyperbolic can all of this get? How exaggerated can we expect this to become, uh, given that I've had to wade through already some protests in New York City? Guy's not even president yet, hasn't done anything yet, and there's all this uh, love Trump's hate stuff that's out there, and a lot of placards and signs and chants uh, that 
tend towards or are full of the profane, so I can't even repeat them on air. I was taking photos of them. I was listening to some of them. It's pretty nasty stuff out there. And there's no trace of irony with some of these protesters when they say things like, love Trump's hate, and then they start cursing at somebody who doesn't agree with them on a matter of policy. There have been some Trump supporters that have been attacked. There are actually people that wear Make America Great Again gear, and that has been a symbol of, or rather that has been a target on them, and they have been assaulted because of it. If the Love Trumps All people are serious about making sure that Trump shows love and isn't this horrific dictator in waiting that they seem to think that he is, I think they should also avoid beating people up for speech. Just going to put that out there as an idea. I think it would probably be best if they didn't take the position that it's so important. They have so much love in their hearts. They're such kind people that if you don't understand that and agree with them, they're going to punch you in the nose. Whoa. Settle down, everyone. This is not where things need to be. This is what I've been telling The Everyone from center left that's in this meltdown over Trump mode just needs to chill. But it's going to be hard. It's going to be hard because, as you see, even with the transition, which you would think is a sort of boring, and I'll talk about some of the picks and what's coming and the policy. That'll be sort of more hour three today, I think. Although we'll get into maybe some of it coming up before then. Transition team picks should be a pretty straightforward process. Nothing to get anyone all that upset. You're looking at long-serving government officials. You're looking at people that are in many cases, already quite well-known to a vast majority of Americans. Trump is rewarding those who were loyal to him in the primary and the general, as I think any president would and quite honestly should. Loyalty is important, especially given that he knows he's going to be in an embattled position from the very start. It's going to be a White House that is under siege. There's no question about that. So he's going to have to have loyalists around him to some degree. You all, he's also talking to Romney. He's also talking to people who are part of the Republican establishment. He's trying to build a team around him. He's trying to construct a framework for his administration that will be as effective as possible. Because he knows he's not going to get a Nobel Peace Prize before he's done anything. He's not going to have the media in his pocket saying that everything that he does is great and constantly patting him on the back and telling him how brilliant and wonderful he is. Quite the opposite. And he even has the additional added stress of Republicans who are deeply, uh, I should say, somewhat concerned. Deeply might be a bit strong, although some of you are probably deeply concerned. Republicans will be holding him to account as well. There really are no barriers or roadblocks except for Trump's ability, the ability of his administration, and the administration's will to get things done, to keep promises to keep that compact with the voters that came out and said enough is enough, no more. We want change in D.C. We don't want this to continue as is. We expect promises to be kept and we expect follow through on the major issues that push the Trump campaign forward. He's either going to do that or he's not. And if he's not, not only is he going to have the media howling about racism, oh, it's all so racist, he's so racist. He has this you know, he's surrounded himself with an anti-Semitic or, or, or has rather put in place an anti-Semitic advisor. And they go, what, what, why is he anti-Semitic? Oh, shut up. You're anti-Semitic too. Wait a second. What? 
the son-in-law is Jewish. His daughter converted to Judaism, but he's an anti-Semite. Why is he an anti-Semite? Oh, because he has. They just want to yell and scream, let the accusations fly. But he doesn't even have the certainty of support from his own side. He's going to have to execute. He's going to have to get it done, or else there's going to be a political revolt from within the Republican Party. And I'll be the one to say it. I'm sure others have said it, too. Don't think for one second that those who were opposed to Trump from within the GOP, I mean really opposed, I mean never Trump. There was a term for it. They're willing to give him a chance, many of them I should say, willing to give him a chance, willing to see how this goes. But if this administration turns into a belly flop in the shallow end of the pool, there will not be much mercy from those who told all, or were telling us all along that they thought that's what would happen. And the administration has to know that and Trump has to know that. So... Rather than focus so much on every little issue and pretend that somehow if we just hold the microscope over every single thing that Trump's doing, I'm seeing people that are upset because his, and when I mean people, I'm a journalist and they've got platforms and oh, they're so important and they're so few people more overpaid, pampered and and self-important for no reason than sort of upper echelon television journalists. I'm just, I'm just saying, uh, they're upset because Barron, one of his children, uh, by Mel- his ch- ch- uh, child of uh, the marriage with Melania Trump and Melania, may not move to D.C. right away. Who cares? What, what difference at this point does that make to anyone? Who cares? Why, why is that an issue? So he wants to stay in New York instead of D.C. Got to tell you, D.C., the fact that it's currently... I think three of the surrounding counties to D.C. are in the top ten wealthiest counties in the entire country. That's not something to be celebrated. Being close to the federal trough for all of those who are just trying to get their cut, trying to get as much as they can, that's something that we should be concerned about. That's something that should stop. But they are trying already to hobble the administration before it has even taken office. And President Obama is part of this process of making sure that there's no, and this is the term they use, normalization of Trump. You see, there was this whole period during the general election where journalists decided, okay, journalist hat gone, now I'm going to put on my advocacy hat, which is not nearly as cool looking as a Make America Great Again hat, let's be honest. It is very catchy. But they said that was okay because this was different. These were dire circumstances. This wasn't McCain or Romney, whom they told us were monsters, by the way, back in the day. Now they're saying, oh, yeah, great public servants, good people, shouldn't worry about it. Well, which is it? Sarah Palin was a threat to the republic. Seems like a nice lady. Threat to the republic. But now they, they, they cried wolf. And there was a very important article, which I, I've uh, mentioned on my show on the Blaze Radio before, um, about crying wolf again. They are crying wolf again because they've cried wolf in the past. Uh, this is how the left does things. But Obama is part of the effort to prevent a normalization of Trump because they don't want to be in a position where the media treats this like an administration that will be judged on the merits, judged on the results. They want to judge it based on the rhetoric and the tone and the previous moments in the campaign that upset them and the things that Trump said that bothered them. And that's all, that is the lens through which everything else will be seen. They don't want to talk about taxes. They don't want to talk about securing the borders, dealing with ISIS, any of that stuff. 
And that will come. But for right now, it's just a question of making sure that all good journalists have their marching orders. The marching orders are, we will defame and destroy this administration no matter what. No matter how moderate, no matter how hardline, doesn't matter. It's Trump. He beat Hillary. She was our chosen one. And now we have to take this administration down. And yeah, Obama didn't go to that extent. I can tell we're going to take you into what the left is thinking about a Trump administration when we come back after the break. But he left the door open to at key moments come in and say Trump is beyond the pale. And that will be the sort of signal put up in the sky to all of the media, everybody else. Pounce, go get him. Now you have to bring down this administration. It'll happen. It's just a question of how soon into the administration it happens. 888-727-BECK. Buck Sexton and for Glenn. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Sexton here in for Glenn today. Thank you so much for joining and, uh, and hanging out. I appreciate it. Um, we have a call in from James in Virginia. We're going to take it. What's up, James? Hey, Buck. I want to say thank you for taking my uh, call today. And I just want to commend you on what you were saying about the media. As a conservative, we all recognize what the media has been doing over the past year whether it was Romney, whether it was McCain, whoever, the, the intent is to vilify and demonize the right. My problem is I was a longtime listener to the Glenn Breck program, and I was a big-time supporter of the Glenn Breck program. But it seems like, thank you, but it seems like when Trump got the nomination over top of Ted Cruz and over top of the other people, it seems like Glenn Beck did exactly what you're saying that the media is now doing to Trump. Now, correct me if I'm wrong on that or can we have that type of disagreement or uh, understanding that that's the same thing that Glenn Beck was doing to Trump during the uh, general election process or primary process? Well, you, you have to understand first, James, that this is Glenn's show and I'm his guest host and also employee. Uh, so I, I never speak for Glenn, uh, nor would I ever um, seek to speak for Glenn. Uh, as to the way things went in the primary I think people had very serious concerns. Look, my biggest concern, uh, this is, now it's like I'm on a college campus and I'm dealing with the social justice. I'm going to speak from the I perspective. That's what we used to say when I was at Amherst. Buck, can you speak from the I perspective? Yes, I can. Uh, My sense of it is this. There were people who were deeply concerned about Trump's principles and whether he would uh, be, or whether he had any principles that were conservative to start with. Um, And then there were people who were deeply concerned about whether he could win. Uh, my biggest concern once you know we got deep enough into the primary was Kenny win, and he did. So I was wrong on that in the sense that I didn't think he could win. I voted for him. I supported him uh, once he became the nominee. Uh, but I, I can't fault those who have dedicated their careers and, 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 and in some cases decades of their lives to supporting a limited government constitutional uh, approach for 
all politicians, for all Americans to support. So I, I understand that passions were very high. I, I don't. I, I think that the the vilification that's been done of Trump in the media in general uh, was not intended just to make him lose the presidency. And I, I think this is an important distinction. It wasn't just so that Trump wouldn't win. It was so that anybody who was thinking about supporting him or who was supporting him uh, would feel bad about themselves, would feel like they should be shunned, would feel dirty, would feel unclean. Uh, that's going well beyond, first of all, what, what anybody should do based on anyone's support for a- any political candidate in this country. Um, there, we, we did not have uh, a a, a fascist totalitarian running for either for on either side of the aisle, and, and we should be clear about that. Uh, we did have a criminal running on one side, I think. I think that Hillary Clinton did break the law repeatedly many times over, and I think that she's going to get away with it. I also think that Donald Trump pardoning... And James, I know I'm kind of getting off topic for a second here, but it's an interesting question. Um, Donald Trump pardoning Hillary Clinton when he comes into office would be a fascinating and I think very savvy political move. I know people would get very upset, but it would mean that forevermore people could say that she had to be pardoned. She can't not accept the pardon. It would make Trump look magnanimous and in a lot of ways I think would do more long-term damage to the credibility of the Democratic Party than a full-fledged investigation of Hillary Clinton. Keep in mind that the crimes that she committed, generally speaking, she would take a plea deal for them and unlikely she would spend Anytime in prison, look at uh, the situation with Petraeus. Although some people disagree with me on that. Okay, um, but you know, but I. I, I all right. And what go I ahead, James. We got about twenty seconds, and we got to go to a break. Well, thank you for sharing that, and I do appreciate you bringing that up. And I just, I'm not a big Trump supporter. I've never been on top of Trump as the greatest, greatest thing. I don't expect him to do anything except the uh, Supreme Court justice. And I just think that right now we see what the left are. We know who they are. We need to stand up and we need to fight against them as aggressive. The great James, the greatest advertisement right now for the reluctant Trump voter is the reaction of leftists across the country after Trump won. Great to have you on, James. Buck Sexton and for Glenn, much more coming. The Glenn Beck Program. Seven two seven back. This is the Glenn Beck program. Buck Sexton in for Glenn today on the Glenn Beck program. Look, the media is actively encouraging people to panic, <laughs> so that's you have to keep that in mind. The media really does want people to go into the new year thinking that if Donald Trump is allowed to do what he's allowed to do as president. We are going to be, what is it, Mad Max Beyond the Thunderdome or one of those dystopian uh, dystopian futures. Not Waterworld, that movie was bad, but one of the other ones. Um, so it's gotten to the point where there are pieces that are written in highbrow 
journals of opinion, or at least they, they think of themselves as highbrow. I think of themselves usually as, as, as a bit crap, but they're, they're not great. Um, there's a piece in the New York Review of Books, and this one really just caught my eye because of all the, all the implications, right? They, they have to insinuate that things are going to get so bad that it's all going to fall apart and the country is no longer going to be the country you think you're living in and it's all going to fall apart and be horrible. piece called Autocracy, Rules for Survival. So see, we're already at that point where we have so little faith, if you believe this line from the left, we have so little faith in the institutions of American government that the mere election of Donald Trump is going to just, he's going to run roughshod over all this stuff. That doesn't matter anymore. That the Congress, the House, Supreme Court, Supreme Court, you know, whatever, who cares? That didn't really work as I meant, but you know what I mean. Uh, It's not going to work out. It's all going to be a giant disaster. So you need to have rules for survival. Now, I know they're going to say that this is just a catchy headline, which catchy headlines sometimes mean that people get a little beyond their meaning in the actual piece. And I read it. So guilty. I sat here and I was like, I want to read the rules for survival under Trump. Autocracy, because Trump will be an autocrat, they say. And then there's this rules for survival issue. Uh, here's what the rules for survival are. Let's go through them for a second. And, and you can tell me how worried you are. Rule number one. This is a piece written by Masha Gessen. Never heard of Masha, but here we go. Uh, believe the autocrat. He means what he says. Okay. A lot of you are probably thinking, I hope so. What, what has Trump said that is, so ter- that is so terrifying to people that now see the cabinet that's forming uh, or that he's forming? And uh, what is the, the huge concern that he's going to enforce immigration law? That is what federal law currently says, that, it, that people who are here illegal aren't supposed to be. That's why they're illegal. I'm trying to think of what, what the terrifying, that there's going to be a lower corporate tax rate. That he wants to spend a trillion dollars on infrastructure, which, I'm going to be honest with you, sounds pretty Democrat-like to me. I mean, it sounds like something that a lot of progressive Democrats could get behind. But Trump says he'll do a great job with it. We are $20 trillion-ish in debt. Probably not a great idea to add a whole lot more to that. But look what George W. did. Republicans have not been fantastic on this in the past. Doesn't mean that we should excuse it now, but let's not pretend that Trump would be the first big spending, big government Republican to be in office. But believe the autocrat. That's rule number one. For survival, you have to remember these things. Okay. Why, why is that an issue? Yeah, believe him. He's going to make America great again. He doesn't say he's going to make America stink again. He's got some ideas. He's got some things in mind. He's trying to push for some policies that he thinks will be better. He's going to have to you know, the other part of this, too, and, and, and I think this needs to be said. Democrats do the whole hero worship thing with politicians, right? Hillary Clinton wasn't just, well, I'm trying to choose my words carefully here, so I don't want to be ungallant on air. Uh, for them, I won't think about, I won't say what I think. Hillary Clinton, for them, was more than just a politician. She was a symbol. She was larger than life. She was representative of their aspirations, and even more importantly for Democrats because of the emotionalism that rules their political mindset, she was a symbol of who each and every Democrat is, right? A vote for Hillary is a vote for I'm smart, I'm thoughtful, I like people, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, yada, yada. 
That's, it's about how it made the individual who supported Hillary feel about himself or herself. That's a big part of it, right? That's why they're sort of, you couldn't say it's really a cult of personality because, ah, Hillary, it's not that exciting. But you could say that it is a cult of Hillary and everything that is around her. And certainly with Obama, we saw, oh my gosh, they love Obama so much. He's so incredible. He's more than a politician. He's more than a symbol. He's, for a lot on the left, he was sort of a quasi-messiah. It was creepy. It really was. It wasn't okay. We don't do that on the right, or at least we shouldn't. I don't. I bet almost all of you listening don't. Uh, But we think of the people that we elevate into high office as fellow citizens that are given powers and responsibilities for specific ends, and we hold them to account. And we have expectations of what they can accomplish based upon what they have said they will do, and then we judge them and... We look at their performance and we decide whether to keep them in office again or not. And this is how the system is supposed to work. But it's not that we all sort of pull the North Korea here and look at portraits of our leaders and praise them and talk about how wonderful they are and how fantastic. And I'll be honest with you, I used to work the federal government. And sometimes you go into some of these offices and they have the current, you know, administration. They have big framed photos of them up, just sort of up to be up. It's like we all know who we work for. I don't think... And whether it was Bush or Obama, and I worked under both, uh, I don't think we need the reminder, you know, the sort of the big framed photo in the office just there in case you forget who the POTUS is and the V-POTUS. So, um, but we don't do the elevation of these people into sort of deity status because that's inherently unconservative, non-conservative. We also are the people that constantly complain about government being uh, too large, too strong, doing too much, too intrusive. Do, does the left really think that we will just go along with a Trump administration that would trample on all individual rights? They think we'd go along. I know some people say, Buck, that's going to happen. You, you just don't see it coming. It's going to happen. I don't know. I can't see the future. But I know that I wouldn't go along with that. You see, a limited government philosophy applies to whomever would be the commander-in-chief. So it's not like I change based on who the president is. What you see on the left is Obama, lots of power, great. Trump, lots of power, terrible. No, I want less power in Obama's hands. I want less power in Trump's hands. Conservatism wants less power in the hands of the executive branch. And I don't think that has changed. I don't think that will change. Uh, We are the people we being conservatives, we being the conservative wing of the Republican Party. It's not really a wing. I'd like to think it's the beating heart, but these days it's, I don't know, you tell me. Uh, We look at what happens and we look at the uh, way that government conducts itself and we put it in that framework. Is this constitutional? Is this within the scope, within the bounds of the duties of this office? And that's not going to change because there's Trump. And we organize, we, we've had big midterm elections that have been rebukes to the government, have been rebukes to the government on both sides of the aisle, and I just think that these fears that somehow Trump is going to be able to get away with everything, no. It's not going to get a, It's one thing to vote for him because you want him to defeat Hillary, and it's one thing to vote for him because you want a slap at the elites in D.C. It doesn't mean that you want to be like Trump's puppet and go along with all this stuff. 
So taking a wait-and-see approach to his administration is not to say that we're going to lie down and let him do whatever because he's the Republican, he's the Republican, um, not just nominee, now the Republican president-elect. It just means let's all take a breath, take a beat, remember what we believe in, what our principles are, and just know that there are some people around Trump, I think, now, and there are some people he's bringing to the administration who are responsible, who are technocrats in one way or another, and it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be okay. I promise. 888-727-BECK, Buck in for Glenn. We'll be back after the break. You're listening to the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Sign up for the newsletter and get all the info you need to know at glennbeck.com. Buck Sexton in for Glenn today. You can uh, follow me on Facebook at uh, facebook.com slash buck sexton. Also go to theblaze.com slash buck dash sexton. Um, uh, donations to the Clinton Foundation. Let's talk about that for a second just because it'll be kind of fun. A lot of us were thinking during the uh, whole election that it was so, so obvious it was so obvious that the Clinton Foundation was the front of a charity, but you know, that was the front of the house, but the rest of it was really a giant slush fund run Clinton for the Clinton brand to pay Clinton cronies as a, a means of creating a sort of giant side, uh, you know, side business of these Clinton speeches that are all tied into the foundation donors. Uh, New York Post here has that the donations to the Clinton Foundation fell by 37% uh, in 2014 before Hillary announced from 108 million uh, down from 172 million. So that happened as Hillary Clinton left the nonprofit in April 2015 and then went on with her candidacy, which as we know, did not work. Uh, But also revenue the Clintons brought in from speeches went from 357,500 down from 3.6 million. So there are some drop-offs, but now people would say, well, Buck, look, see, she was running for office, and they didn't want there to be conflicts of interest. Well, why would, why would the money for the foundation start to go down at that point in time unless, well, they were concerned that it would look bad so close to it? Remember, they said they were going to stop taking, at a certain point, they were going to stop taking foreign donations to the Clinton Foundation, which, why stop if it was always okay? You can't have it both ways. The real, uh, the rubber meets the road on this one. You'll really have something to talk about, and we'll have something to talk about when we see what the sort of fiscal, what would it be, 50, fiscal uh, 2016 looks like for the Clinton Foundation and for speeches given by the Clintons. Because if all of a sudden Bill's like giving you like 50%, you know, it's like you can get two for one. You fly me out to wherever. I mean, you know, Pyongyang, I'm here for you. Uh, if it's a two for one situation with, with Bill Clinton speeches and Hillary speeches, if they drop 50% in value or even more, won't we all know then? I mean, we already know, but won't that be proof to anybody who 
is of reasonable, sound mind on these issues. Won't that be proof that this was all a giant scam all along? Won't we then know that you don't leave the presidency as Bill Clinton did, and then all of a sudden your speeches get dramatically more valuable as your wife becomes Secretary of State just because? Just because. Quite a coincidence, isn't it? The people were so much more interested and showed that interest with wads of cash. Quite a coincidence that they were able to amass a fortune through giving speeches of over $100 million, some estimate $150 million. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money without offering a product. And if all of a sudden those speeches are much, they're not going to be zero. There are still going to be corporations that will pay Hillary Clinton. So, But you'll see, I think, I'll make a little prediction here, it will fall in line with what other former heads of state make, which is still a crazy amount of money for some of these places. But you're not going to get $800,000 a speech as Bill did. I mean, it was a really good speech. Uh, you're going to get more like 100 or 150, which to you and me is like, this is amazing. I, you know, I'd, I'd give a speech or two a year and call it a day, spend the rest of the time on the beach. Uh, but that would show, wouldn't it? That would prove what we alleged all along. We will see now. The market will speak in a sense because what the market was rewarding before was not how brilliant Hillary and Bill Clinton were. It was rewarding this scheme they had created, which was really just a giant highway, an avenue of access to the most powerful corridors of government via the Clinton Foundation as the alibi for all this cash flowing through. It muddied the waters. It made it more difficult. It made it seem like what was going on here was creating a better world for all of us when in reality it was creating a vast empire of patronage and of self-enrichment for Hillary, Bill Clinton, and the whole Clinton, uh, the whole Clinton family. I don't want to lose sight of that because I think that given this election, given that so many of us were wrong about who was going to win and where all this was going, I think it's fair for you and for me to look at what happens with the Clinton Foundation and say, at least we saw that for what it was. Because I would be willing to make quite a bet that you will see a marked drop-off in vast donations to the Clinton Foundation from certain individuals. There'll still be money coming in. It still does some charity. I get it. But it'll drop real fast. But the speeches... I want to know when the next Bill Clinton $800,000 30-minute engagement is. I want to see when that happens. Uh, I think they may even decide they're not going to give speeches for money, period, because it would be so obvious that once they start giving these speeches, the price drops dramatically. They were really running a huge scam, selling the Secretary of State's office. What a surprise.
of entertainment and enlightenment. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn Beck today on the Glenn Beck program. Thank you so much for joining. 888-727-BECK on those phone lines. We've got our friend John Schindler joining us now as our guest. He is the national security columnist for the New York Observer. You can read his latest at Observer.com. Also, you can follow him on Twitter at 20Committee. Mr. Schindler, good to have you, sir. It is a pleasure as always, Buck. All right, so let's talk about it. This cabinet is coming together. Some very, certainly very interesting and and dynamic picks. Uh, Jim Mattis, General Mattis, he is possibly the next Secretary of Defense. Uh, You are formerly of the NSA. I'm formerly of the CIA. And we have Mike Flynn, perhaps, as the next NSA. We'll talk about that in a second. Uh, But let's talk about Mattis first. What do you think about this pick, assuming it goes through? Uh, assuming it goes through, and Mr. Trump, our president-elect, has indicated that he's General Mattis definitely on a short list for the Secretary of Defense. If that goes through, this is the best news we could possibly get from a national security perspective. Mattis is a you know, known as Mad Dog, uh, is a is a re- revered figure in national security circles. He's arguably the best general of his generation, a career Marine. Um, I, I know Mattis slightly personally, and I, I think the world of him. I think he is a rare mix of. Uh, of a real warrior uh, and a real scholar at the same time. He's never married. He's a little bit of jokes about him being a monk. Not literally a monk, but he's devoted himself to his military profession his whole life, and he's a deep thinker. He's a genuinely deep thinker. And DOD, our Pentagon, is a bureaucratic mess. It needs to be shaken hard and fixed, particularly on the budgeting side and strategy side. And if Jim Mattis can't do it, no, no human being can he also is attributed with a quote so cool that I think anybody wishes that they had come up with it. Be polite, be professional, but have a plan to kill everyone you meet. Right. That, that, and, that and leaves. That's, yeah. That's vintage Mattis. I mean, Mattis is, uh, is, is, is the real thing. We have a lot of general officers in our military who are, you know, sort of pose as tough as nails, uh, but able to think big thoughts at the same time. And Mattis actually is that I can, I can vouch for that personally. And, he has a fabulous reputation uh, as our boss of Central Command, uh, our Middle Eastern Command. He legendarily commanded the 1st Marine Division in his drive into Iraq in 2003. Um, and also, he was fired quite unceremoniously by the Obama administration uh, a couple of years back as the Central Command boss over the issue of Iran. And here's a really revealing thing about Jim Mattis. Jim Mattis has never really spoken about this. He's a class act. He doesn't, unlike Mike Flynn, who makes up stories about why he was fired, Mattis was fired over principle. Mattis strenuously objected to the deal with Iran and felt that empowering the mullahs in Tehran was a huge strategic mistake. And he got fired for that. He was fired very unceremoniously, rudely by the White House, and he's never out of the White House for that. Him coming back to set some of this right would be a great thing for, for us and for our allies. And now, uh, John, you're a veteran from from friends of yours who are either still inside in the armed services or, or who have served. I, I, I've never heard from people I know in the intel community on my side of things anything but good things about Mattis. The support from inside yeah. the military, from the rank and file all the way up to the top, my understanding is pretty strong. I, to, to, I, I, pretty honestly, strong to very I, I strong. But I, 
I, I can't believe I can say this. I don't know that I've ever heard anyone criticize Mattis in a serious way on a, on a really substantive issue. No, no general officer makes all correct decisions, but he's a genuinely, you know, widely universally admired guy who knows how to make the trains run on time. And as I said, the Pentagon needs someone who can break some China at this point. The budgeting process, the acquisition process, as evidenced by disasters like the F-35, the Joint Strike Fighter, is really seriously broken. And we need someone who understands this to go in grab it with both hands and affect some real change. Matt. All right. Now, bef- before we get on to uh, the issue of Flynn, uh, of Mike Flynn as possible national security advisor, uh, let's just uh, Romney meeting with Trump yeah. over the weekend. People are saying secretary of state seems like a political move. But on the merits, what do you think about a Romney sex state? I think he'd be great. I mean, I, I was never a big fan of Mitt Romney as a presidential candidate, but he has a lot of the skill set you need to be Secretary of State, someone who understands how the world actually works. As we know, to the embarrassment of President Obama, Mitt Romney's instincts on Russia back in 2012 were exactly right, and the president was wrong. Um, I think a Romney appointment would be greeted in D.C. among professional bureaucrats as a really good thing, because he's a balanced guy, he's a smart guy, and he's not particularly ideological, and he will focus on getting American diplomacy back into Earth orbit and focused on a reality. No more James Taylor concerts, no more John Kerry, no more Hillary pay for play. We know Romney, whatever his, his neg- negatives are, he's not corrupt, and he understands how the world actually works. I think he'd be a great Secretary of State. Yeah, very honest guy, very capable guy. And also, Absolutely. I feel like with the Democrats, among their main criticisms of, of him from the election, including that he would give people cancer, but we'll put that aside because that was just unfair and insane, uh, but that he was sort of a, a vulture capitalist. Maybe it'd be a good thing for America to have a guy who understands how to use leverage and uh, squeeze as much as possible oh, from his side out of the deal talk, on the world stage. It. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think he would bring some pretty interesting things to the table with that regard. He'd do it with a smile and a firm handshake, but right. if you want somebody That's negotiating right. for your side in an international trade deal, I think Mitt Romney would do a darn good job. Yeah, I, I don't think, you know, any of his negatives as a presidential candidate remotely apply, you know, including that he causes cancer, right? Uh, remotely have anything to do with how he'd be as a secretary of state, and I would welcome his appointment, as would a lot of people in D.C. and not just in the Republican Party. Speaking to John Schindler, he's a national security columnist for the New York Observer. Observer.com is where you'll find his pieces. I highly recommend you check them out. He's former NSA. Uh, John now let's talk about so former NSA John Schindler. Let's talk about the possible NSA Mike Flynn. Uh, you yeah. do not hold back on this one. I want you to tell me and everybody else listening, make the case, please. Why is General Flynn, in your estimation, not the guy for this job? Well, uh, let's leave aside his strange ties to Russia, the very pro-Kremlin things he says, that he's taking money from Russia today, which is the state propaganda network. Let's, let's leave that aside. The problem is Mike Flynn is a smart guy who is, uh, doesn't play well with others. He, he rose to be a three-star general in the Army and was fired as director of the Defense Intelligence Agency by Obama. And as a strong critic of Obama and foreign policy, let me say that Obama was absolutely right to fire Mike Flynn as the director of DIA. Uh, Mike Flynn wanted to reform DIA, which is all well and good. It's a really stodgy intelligence community bureaucracy. But he did it in a way that was, frankly, you know, abusive of the workforce, uh, and he was quickly hated by the workforce. And you don't change an organization by making everyone hate you. Uh, as the Democrats just found out, uh, you know, uh, in, in the election, the white working class is not going to vote for you if you hate them. By the same token, the DIA workforce is not going to help you reform if you make clear they're all fools and idiots and lazy. 
Uh, Mike Flynn turfed out, and my fear is he will bring that same management style, which is aggressive, uh, where it doesn't need to be, into the National Security Council. What, now, now let me let me ask you to, to be fair to be yeah. fair to the other side of this, which I don't pretend to be on, but I, I'm I'm assuming yeah. that if we had a a Trump spokesperson or somebody attached to the transition team here, they'd say, well, uh, or, or they could say, and I, I wanted to pose this to you, John. But he's going to be in an advisory role to the president. So it's really more about his knowledge, background and understanding of issues like dealing with jihadism, radical Islamic uh, terrorism and not all the things you talked about may well be true. And I've heard similar things. And my understanding is that bureaucratically there was an ineptitude on display at the top of DIA in terms of how he handled that, which is also a very difficult job to manage these enormous intel bureaucracies. Um, But. That wouldn't be his role. His role would be to be there close to Donald Trump and advising him as national security advisor. What about on that side of things when it comes to his judgment, um, knowledge and understanding of the threats we face? I think the, I think the problem you have there is Trump uh, is a very impulsive, uh, high strung individual. You want a national security advisor who can moderate that. And Flynn is exactly the same kind of shoot from the hip say hard things without thinking about them. And when you're in that job, that's going to have real consequences. And you want someone there who can think big picture about strategy. And Mike Flynn is right about some of the things he says about jihadism, but he also thinks it's the biggest threat we face. And I don't. I think it's top three. But the reality is, you know, Russia and China both have, both have several thousand nuclear weapons that can wipe us off the face of the planet. The jihadists, thank God, don't. Uh, and that means there are huge threats to our national security. I disagree with Mike Flynn that that is the preeminent threat we face. We face a lot of threats, and jihad, jihadist terrorism is one of them. He also has a way of alienating the entire Muslim world, which, given that we're t- utterly dependent on Muslim allies to fight jihadism, that's not really a good thing. What do you make of this report, by the way, uh, switching gears to the Obama administration for a second? Uh, we're talk- everyone's talking so much yeah. about the Trump transition that I feel like it gets lost yeah. sometimes that – There's still a White House that's making decisions. They're trying to bolster the Iran deal as we speak. So they're saying not to make it harder to uh, unravel for Trump. But it seems like to hit the accelerator at the very end here on that uh, has some some consequences. They want Um, to make this irreversible down to the last minute they're in the White House. And, you know, because this is their signature thing, right? I mean, this is, this is Obama's claim to fame. He got this great deal with Iran, which, as we know, is not really a great deal. And Trump wants to tear it down. I mean, I think actually tearing it down is going to be harder than Trump and his people realize. But the Iranians are going to have a much harder, harder team in, the, in, in Washington now than they've had, where Obama and company have accommodated everything they wanted and let them get away with crazy stuff. Back to Jim Mattis. Jim Mattis raised holy hell with the White House several years ago when the Iranian intelligence service tried to blow up the Saudi ambassador to the United States in a public restaurant in downtown Washington, D.C. This was an unambiguous act of war, and Mattis wanted us to seriously diplomatically retaliate. You know what the White House did? Hardly anything, and they told Mattis to calm down. Mattis was right, and this kind of appeasement of the mullahs in Tehran has gotten us worse and worse Iranian behavior. And if that stops, I'll be very pleased. There's also this report that uh, James, uh, that Clapper and Carter have told yeah. Obama to fire the head of, of your former uh, home base, the NSA. Yeah. What do you think about that? What's that all coming from? Uh, it pains me to say I think that would be a wise move, and it is, in fact, overdue. Admiral Mike Rogers, a Navy four-star admiral, um, you know, came to NSA with a great reputation. Unfortunately, he's sullied that reputation through some pretty bad mistakes. 
Um, he's run through an organ- a reorganization in a way that really upset the workforce with cause. He's been distant. He hasn't, he hasn't communicated well with the workforce. He's upset some of our close intelligence allies around the world. And most importantly, we've had more security disasters. He was brought in to clean up the epic mess left behind by the Snowden theft and defection to Russia. And now we've had another case, another the Martin case, very similar to, in the sense that the NSA affiliate, a contractor who stole huge amounts of classified data and brought it home with him. Um, this has happened again. NSA security and counterintelligence have not been reformed, as I and others have urged for years, as Congress was told was happening. It has not happened. And Mike Rogers is the captain of the ship here, and he has to go down. Unfortunately, I think relieving him of duty is the only choice the Pentagon and the intelligence community has. Right before we let you go, John, how would you, if you had to give a grade to uh, Trump's national security picks and considerations, because I know, you know there's a lot that's all up in the air, where would you, what would you grade it right now? Well, if we're going with Mattis, I'd say it's an A+. Uh, you know, Flynn, Flynn brings that down a fair amount, but I, I'm, honestly, I'm encouraged so far. We don't know a lot so far. It's mostly rumor, but I think we're going to have it's, – it's going to break out two ways. A lot of the cabinet appointees and senior appointees in the departments like state, defense, other you know, homeland security are going to be really solid people who know what they're doing and are not particularly ideological. They're not, they're not, they're not Trumpers. They're Republicans, but they, they're not part of the, they were not part of the Trump movement. The folks inside the White House are going to clearly be Trump loyalists who are perhaps their loyalty matters more to the president-elect than their knowledge of, say, national security affairs. That means you're going to, from day one, have some tension between professionals, you know, career generals, diplomats, whatever, successful business people who are running cabinet departments and the folks in the White House who maybe don't really understand how all, how all that uh, – wonderful stew gets made over there across the river in northern Virginia. So I, I, I think there could be some tension right out of the starting gate. All right. John Schindler is the author of Fall of the Double Eagle. He's also the columnist at the New York Observer for National Security. Go to Observer.com. John, great to have you, sir. Talk to you soon. Great to be here. 888-727-BECK-BUCK in for Glenn. We'll be right back. We have one. The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Buck Sexton here in Fort Glenn today. Thank you very much for joining, being here with me. And uh, 888-727-BECK, B-E-C-K, if you want to call in. We've got Bruce in Wyoming. What's up, Bruce? You're on the Glenn Beck program. You are speaking to Buck. Hi, Buck. How are you today? Good, sir. How are you? I'm good. I've been listening pretty avidly to your uh, to your program. I think it's I think it's pretty good. But I think that uh, a lot okay. of folks Thanks. these days are really missing uh, a huge component of this whole post election process. We have uh, we have people rioting in the streets, and we have the media uh, discounting every other manner of conservative active participation by anybody in the world because it's propaganda. That's all this is. It is spew. We see pollsters uh, saying, oh, Hillary's going to win by 320 electoral votes. 
these people are believing their own propaganda. If they weren't, then how did Mr. Trump become the president-elect of the United States? It's a simple fact that if you tell a lie long enough, that somebody is going to believe it. And these people well, have been I, you doing know, I this think, for a very long time. Bruce, I do think there's, there's an important distinction to be made here, and that's between the propaganda that the media sometimes puts out that they know to be either untrue, that they know to be untrue or exaggerated, but it's for effect, right? So they'll say uh, that so-and-so is a racist. What evidence do you have for that? Oh, you know, whatever. You know, Jeff Sessions uh, has gotten a lot of heat as he's going to be the attorney general. Oh, Jeff Sessions is a racist. What has he done that makes him a racist? Oh, well, you know what? I said so. Well, certainly, uh, you know, we're... we're wait, 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 hold, wait, wait, Bruce. Wait, hold, 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 one sec. But then on the other side, you mentioned Hillary and the electoral votes... I think that that's where they actually believed it. I think they did think that Hillary was going to win. I think they were. I mean, if you saw the faces on some of the news networks and if you spoke to people and saw what they were writing in some of the news and, and, and most, a vast majority of the newsrooms across the country, that wasn't just the propaganda they were feeding others for effect. They did believe that. And there's a distinction between it. I think that's why they feel so uh, they feel so much like they got a Chuck Norris roundhouse kick to the face that night because... They really didn't think that was going to happen. is so effective at disseminating this kind of information, and we have become conditioned to it. Look in 2008. There was actually news agencies that wanted to have a home base in the White House. You know, this, this whole process has been nothing but Psych 101 from the very inception of the Barack Obama, uh, his cabal. From the very inception, these people have got the ball. We're going to run it. We're going to spin this the way we want to. But we have to also remember that all of the things that we're listening to from ABC are all about, you know, communists or NBC, nothing but communists, is simply spin, spew, and propaganda. They are the minority, or we wouldn't have Donald Trump as the president-elect. All right. Thanks for calling in, Bruce. Uh, I mean, certainly elite journalists are are a minority. Um, Riven? Is that am I Riven in Oklahoma? Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yes, yes. My name. All right. Dad were tree hugging hippies. You know, try not to judge. Cool name. My name is Buck. I judge nothing. What's up? Okay. Listen, I was listening earlier, and I'm a first time caller, and I want you to be patient with me here as I'm trying to articulate this. We only have one minute, unfortunately, but go ahead. Sure, I can knock it out in in a minute. I was listening to you earlier talk about how the left and the right were reacting in regard to the protests that are out there. Now, I'm a professional photojournalist, and yesterday I attended a rally in Oklahoma City, and I saw both sides of what was taking place and forming in our country. Now, I agree with you earlier, and I think this should be pointed out more often, that protests are actually, regardless whether it's the right, left, or in the middle, or anywhere else, Protests are a way. It is the message. It is a. It is a, a method of talking to our legislators, to talking to our leadership in whatever city or state or country that you're in. And I think it's a part of the democratic process. And I don't think that it should be put down quite as easily, whether it's from the left or the right or anywhere else. This is how the democratic process works after the fact. All right, Ribbon. Thank you very much, Buck. In for Glenn. Be right back. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.
Buck Sexton here in for Glenn today on the Glenn Beck Program. Thanks so much for being here. Appreciate your time. Very much an honor to be sitting in for Glenn. And I want to talk a bit about national security philosophy. Uh, I was a CIA analyst for a while. That was my, uh, my career before I somehow got into media, a story for another time, uh, and studied international relations and political science and a lot of the uh, history and politics of the Islamic world, even took uh, a little bit of Arabic, although I was never very good, never learned very much. Uh, so here I sit looking at, again, the way that the table is being laid for the Trump administration on national security matters. The framing of national security issues, uh, according to the media, as we get ready for a, a Trump presidency. And I thought it was very interesting to read a uh, a piece. I, I didn't, oh wait, <laughs> I didn't finish before with the, uh, what was it again? The how to survive uh, the autocracy. So I just wanted to give you what the, uh, it was rule number one was believe the autocrat. And rule number two, do not be taken in by small signs of normality. Rule number three, institutions will not save you. Rule number four, be outraged. And rule number five, don't make compromises. Uh, so that's the way they want you to be thinking about Trump. And especially, I think, on, on national security issues, all of that applies. They want you to be outraged uh, when he does things like make, uh, or at least talk about making General Mattis Secretary of Defense. Don't take that as a sign of, uh, well, just as a sign of intelligent decision-making or a wise choice. Take it as some plot to throw you off the trail. You know, it's, it, they never... They never will give any credit here on anything. And, of course, be outraged. How much more outraged can the left already be? There are protests across the country. There are people who are kicking in stores. Uh, they're, they're breaking glass windows in places like Oregon that probably voted 70, 80 percent, I'm guessing, but I don't know, for Hillary. Huge, but definitely a big majority voted for Hillary in, in, in Oregon. Or in Portland, I meant to say, not in all of Oregon. I know there's parts of Oregon that are very red. And then there's Portland, which is communist. Although some nice pastries and things. I've been there. I enjoyed it. So the rules for how to deal with the Trump administration, which is supposed to be autocratic, uh, you can apply them also to the way you should view if you're going to be a good leftist because they're establishing right now how, how you're supposed to think about these things. Right? If you, if you want to be a smart person, a smart leftist, a smart Democrat, you've got to avoid normalization of any of the Trump stuff. And on national security issues, just understand that not only is he a novice, but everything he does is wrong. Everything he does is bad. You know who also was a national security novice, by the way? Didn't know anything about the military, never served, didn't know anything at all about any stuff? Barack Obama. But he was going to fix the world and, uh, because of stopping the rise of the seas and there were some Greek columns or something. I don't, I don't know who at this point, whatever. So we go to the Trump philosophy for national security. And I have to say, as you look at this, uh, you look at a piece in Politico on this. Interesting. As much for what it says about the Democrat and Obama view of America and the world as it does for how they think a Trump presidency will play out on national security issues. The, the piece is Team Trump's message the clash of civilizations is back. That's the headline. Now, again, headlines are meant to suck you in. And I'm looking at this saying, all right, I'm going to read this one. A reference to Huntington's essay in Foreign Affairs, The Clash of Civilizations, which was then expanded into a book, which I, by the way, highly recommend to all of you, both the essay in Foreign Affairs and the expanded version of it into a full book form. 
uh, and a reference to Bernard Lewis using the term, I believe, in the early 90s. Bernard Lewis, the esteemed historian of the Middle East at Princeton University, um, who looks at things not from the uh, multiculturalist and moral relativist perspective and therefore runs into some problems. We'll, we'll talk about the Islamic world as it was based on the history instead of just, oh, it was this uh, example of tolerance for all ages. And there was some tolerance. There was a lot of, you know, the sword or Islam that happened too, but perhaps a discussion for another day. But Team Trump's message, the class of civilizations is back. I look at that headline and I think to myself, did it ever go away? Did they think that it stopped? And Huntington's essay, if you read it, or if you read the book, I've read both, you see there's really not, I mean, you, you can add to it, you can take certain parts of it to agree or disagree, but the notion that there are these things, these sort of uh, ideas that have real impact on all of our lives called civilizations, and that they will intersect and collide and be in conflict, that doesn't seem to be a particularly out-of-the-box point of view. That seems like a straightforward reading of what's happening around us all the time. So the class of civilizations being back, to me, it automatically makes you think, well, where did it go? Of course it's here. Now, they want to turn this into uh, Trump and Islamophobia, and I'll get to that in the piece in a second. The subheading, though, is also very interesting. So we have the notion of the class of civilizations as though it went away. Now they're saying it's back because of Trump. Okay, well, I, again, as I said, under Obama, it did not disappear at all. We saw the rise of ISIS. We saw Russian interventionism. We saw expansion, expansionism uh, in terms of support for terror and insurgency groups from Iran. A lot of bad stuff happening. So it's not like everything was cool because the Obama administration took this very multilateralist and America in retreat worldview. But the subheadline, you really get into some of the, some of the meat of this. From Bannon's defense of the Judeo-Christian West, referring to Steve Bannon, to Flynn's attacks on Muslims, some, I always love that word when they use it, because how many, some NATSEC experts, the cool kids write NATSEC, national security, or they'll say sex state for secretary of state. I did that before, guilty as charged. Fear the incoming Trump administration is at war with Islam and that it won't end well. I have yet to see anything in the Trump administration to be, it isn't even here yet, uh, that suggests that Donald Trump thinks we're at war with an entire religion, that we're actually going to actively go to war with that religion. Um, but when you look at the way they frame this issue, again, when, they, when you look at how the media is trying to create expectations for the Trump administration and also build into that that they will fail those expectations... Um, you see that they're also saying a lot about what's happened before. Um, the door has been kicked wide open for a Trump administration to speak more openly and honestly about the threat specifically from jihadism, radical Islam, whatever your preferred nomenclature is for this phenomenon that affects us all the time and all of us, wherever we are. Do you, I mean, look, how many of you know somebody who's had to ser- who has served, how many of you have served in Iraq or Afghanistan or anywhere else as part of the war, what used to be called the war on terror, the global war on terror, the GWAT, as we called it in CIA, CTC, when I was there, Counterterrorism Center. Um, 
Many of you served yourselves, have family, friends who served. Uh, you also are a citizen. You pay taxes to support that military that is out there trying to fight this global war on terror. But even in other ways, you are connected to all of this. I just flew down here to Dallas yesterday, had to get on a plane, had to go through security. Why do we have airport security? What's the primary threat to, air, to, air, air, uh, to aviation and to planes in the sky, uh, civilian airliners? A jihadist blowing one up. Have other people done it? Sure, right? We could even talk about how in the Medellin cartel was Pablo Escobar blew a plane out of the sky before people even knew who Osama bin Laden was. But the primary threat, the one that worries us the most, is that someone is going to either put a bomb on one of those planes or perhaps even smuggle a bomb on himself, yell Allahu Akbar, and take the whole thing out of the sky, killing everyone on board. So I have to get in line, and I have to get there early, and it takes time for me, and we have the TSA, we have all this. So it affects all of us. This isn't some far-off war that we can put in some uh, intellectual box and think about, but doesn't have any impact on us. We are still at war in Afghanistan. We are fighting. We are taking casualties, as we did last week, in the war in Afghanistan, and we are assisting allies on the ground in Iraq in their fight against the Islamic State. We have Iranian proxies fighting against U.S., either uh, proxies or allies across the Middle East. We've got all kinds of problems going on over there. And the Obama administration seems to think at the very top of the list of things that they're worried about when it comes to jihadism is let's not talk about it in a way that offends people. Now, you can say that, as they do, Saying radical Islam doesn't make a difference, although you'll notice during the campaign, Hillary Clinton actually did say it a couple of times because she knew the American people aren't, as a whole, in the majority, with the Obama view of how you discuss terrorism. They're not okay with redacting ISIS and in the name of Islam and in the name of the Islamic State from the Orlando uh, mass murdering terrorists transcripts, the the uh, 911 transcripts that were initially redacted by the FBI, by the DOJ, because um, they're not okay with that. They disagree with the administration on that. There's this wide open space now where we can look at the way that the administration in the past has spoken about these issues. And they also say that it is a war of ideas, but they won't discuss the ideas openly. They won't even name the ideas. You can't do it. And anybody anywhere in the country who's paying attention and being honest knows that that the dictates of, once again, political correctness have overridden the need to speak openly and honestly about the nature of this threat. Apart from whatever concern somebody might have, for example, about Mike Flynn's bureaucratic abilities, capabilities, or lack thereof, he does seem to have a very clear sense of the threat of jihadism, and is certainly willing to speak about it. And I feel like Trump, if nothing else, believes that having a clear vision when you're trying to understand how to approach that enemy, that's step one. That's the first place you need to be. But that there's a clash of civilizations and that this is part of the collective freakout that the Democrats, the left, the media are having about this incoming Trump administration just goes to show you that, no, we've been in this clash. We've used that terminology for decades. We've been in that clash As America, by the way, from the very beginning, go back and read about the Barbary Pirates, if you like, and the first real war we had on foreign shores uh, to the shores of Tripoli. Uh, This has been going on for quite a long time. And the election of any one candidate 
isn't somehow setting it off or creating this dynamic. This dynamic has been in place that the Obama administration thought that it was a strategic asset to deny a clash of civilizations is very discouraging uh, and wrong. That they think that it's a deep and biting criticism of the Trump administration to point out that a clash of civilizations, not just Islam and the West, but many others, exists and is likely to be exacerbated, to get worse in the years ahead. That's just a recognition of reality. may not make people feel all warm and fuzzy, but it is true. It is there. Going to a break. We'll be right back. This is... The Glenn Beck Program. Mercury. Buck Sexton here in for Glenn, finishing up the show today, but I'll be back with you tomorrow, 9 to 12 Eastern, so please do uh, tune in once again. We'll have a lot to talk about. We have some fantastic guests. I don't even want to tell you who they are because they're so awesome. You might not be able to sleep tonight. You'll be so excited. That's probably overselling it, but it's going to be a good show. Let's take Harvey in Illinois. Harvey, you're on the Glenn Beck program. You're speaking to Buck. Hey, I miss your da- your daily TV show, by the way. That was a pretty in- integral part of my life. <laughs> oh, thank you. Me too. <laughs> uh, listen, you. you know, Trump has every opportunity to galvanize at, at least the conservatives along with a lot, a lot of disenfranchised Democrats. Uh, just, by, just by his nominations, you could see... Uh, and I'm, I was a never Trumper, and still kind of am. I, but he has a way, he has a path to win us all over, and, and I think that's you, you know reaching out, not necessarily across uh, party lines, but across principle lines, like from progressivism to ultra conservatism, even uh, libertarianism. Uh, reaching out to somebody like Dr. Paul Andrew Napolitano for you know specific nom- nominations, it, picking those kind of people. Look would restore some faith in at least the Republican Party and quite possibly soak in some of those disenfranchised Democrats. No question, and I completely agree with you that, and I feel like everybody should at least recognize this. I think this is a statement of fact more than opinion. Trump has an enormous opportunity uh, to to do tremendous good, not just for the Republican Party, but for the country. He has a tremendous, he is in the best position of any Republican since Reagan. I mean, he's, it's, He's got an enormous opportunity, so I'm. That's why I'm trying to be hopeful about it, and we'll see. We Could you imagine a, a cabinet with position with with people with differing opinions, like um, just just for sake of argument, like a doctor or like Ron Paul for as a Secretary of State, or Andrew Napolitano on the Supreme Court, somebody who wouldn't argue from the bench, but would actually compare the standard to compare it to the standard that is the Constitution. I hear you. Harvey, thanks for calling in. Uh, That's going to be it for today's show. Uh, Thank you very much for joining me. I'm back tomorrow, 9 to 12 Eastern, across the country. Very excited to be doing so. You can learn more about me at theblaze.com slash buck-sexton. 
and uh, download my daily podcast there, which is every day, 12 to 3, three hours. Uh, Until tomorrow, everybody, this is Buck Saxon from Dallas. Over and out. This is the Glenn Beck Program. Mercury.